0: Welcome back to Dirty Harry Minute, I'm your host John I hope you enjoyed the last episode Some Dirty Harry themed comedy By the legendary stand-up comedian Jerry Riser. It's very rare to hear this guy He's all but retired now, but we managed to get him out for one last comedy roast I hope it gave you a few chuckles uh, The episode also had some selections from other podcasts ...that had some things to say about Dirty Harry... ...so please do consider checking them out... ...the Remedial Film Class Podcast... ...they did a very good job of analysing the film... uh, ...and others too... ...so maybe check them out and go through their catalogue... ...and this episode we have some more B-roll... ...originally meant for the Deconstructing Dirty Harry episode... ...about the state of policing in America... ...and Australia too... ...which unfortunately is just as relevant now as ever. Harry Callahan is a pretty brutal cop, and as much as we all idolise him in film, it's always helpful to put things in perspective about the real-life cops, as Hollywood's portrayal of policing, obviously, has a lot more to do with expectations of cops than in real life. And I've also added some clips from another cop buddy film interspersed throughout, so things don't get too heavy. Let's see if you can guess which film that is. If you can, uh, why don't you leave a message on the Dirty Harry Facebook page. So that's about it. Um, Please recommend this show to a friend or anyone you know who likes either Clint Eastwood or Dirty Harry or cop films in general. And if you could leave a review on itunes in particular or stitcher that would be most helpful that's about it for now thanks to everyone who's been on the show recently or or, or donated their time to create some content particularly niall mcgowan david dedrick brian lockhart Stuart rice glynn francis and of course jerry porter catch you next time hammerheads
1: Let's hope this one turns out pretty darn good, huh?
2: Sammy P here from Confessions of the Idiots. Congratulations to everyone at Dirty Harry Minute. I remember coming on and talking about Dirty Harry twice. Dirty Harry is still a fantastic film, and I don't know how you did it all that time, Jay, just going through those minutes every time and finding new, interesting information Every single time. You know, I couldn't do it and didn't probably on the podcast. I probably didn't bring that many interesting facts, but it's always great to listen to and congratulations on making it so far in the podcast world. I think that's how you, how you say it, podcast. So congratulations on doing it. I know we're the only two podcasts in Australia. Uh, Mine is Confessions of the Idiots. If you want to listen, that's just a little plug, cheeky plug in there. But congratulations, Jay. What a massive achievement. And can't wait to see what you do next, probably over Clint Eastwood now, probably over Dirty Harry. Totally understand that. But exciting to see which movie you will pick apart for years to come after this.
3: I think the diversity of the witnesses, or witnesses, I'm still talking like a cop. You do? Uh, do you ever
4: get out of that police space? No,
3: it, fall, it falls back in, in the place sometimes, yeah. I'm just going to they check, teach check you myself. how to
4: speak like that when they say, decamped in a northerly direction? Wasn't it
3: ridiculous, or the accident was east past the prolongation of the western <laughs> curb? Like, what does that mean? What does
4: it mean? <laughs> Often, even as a journalist, I'd sit there in a police interview and think, I have no idea what this bloke. talking Why don't talking we about.
3: just say Why someone ran away? <laughs> exactly, <laughs> Because you're in the witness box and you're held accountable um, mm. to whatever you say, whether it be your reports mm. or giving evidence. And so you keep it very contained. And so I suppose it's safer just saying decamped. Mm. Well, I didn't say run, I didn't say hoppy, yes. decamped. Yeah, you know, okay. that type of thing.
1: But-
5: hey, you Dirty Harry fam, it's your boy Mitch Grinter here, recording from a car park in Moama. What a time to be alive thank you for having me as a part of the journey throughout Dirty Harry Minute. Now that it's come to an end, it's probably a time to make a little confession. I've seen Dirty Harry once. Uh, I think I was 14 when I saw it. I've seen about 10 minutes of The Deadpool, and that was mostly for the sort of trivia of Jim Carrey playing a heroin addict rock star. Uh, Dirty Harry was not a major part of my life growing up, but that doesn't stop the fact that he's an absolute icon. And that was why I was happy to join in. The one time that I did say it, I wanna say I was 16 years old. I was at a house in an area of Geelong that I don't remember with two girls that I don't remember. I don't know how I met them. I don't know why I was at their house. All I know is I was trying to get a tiny little bit of action and somehow in that house, we ended up watching Dirty Harry instead. I'm not upset, it was an amazing experience, it's led me to where we are right now. I hope you guys have enjoyed the ride and thank you once again for letting me be a part of this wonderful little podcast, delving into, you know, an absolute icon in the most minute detail possible. Enjoy, I look forward to coming back maybe for uh, the Escape from Alcatraz minute by minute podcast. I, if anything, hope I can get the bit where he's trying to sneak a metal wedge through a metal detector. I have a lot of thoughts. See you guys next time.
6: Bye.
3: Don't want to play that cop, that Ray Casanova. Casanova, Ray Casanova.
6: you damn right I want to play that part. You know why? Because that's a guy. That's a real guy, Ant. That's a guy who worries about paying the rent. That's a guy who, who bleeds when he gets shot, who pukes when he gets sick. Lieutenant, four times this uh, party crasher has alerted you before killing someone and he still got away. Do you care to comment on that? Yeah, why don't you tie your dick in a knot? Ugh. Freeze! Slow mo! Slow Look at those eyes. That's my character, man. That's my guide. That's Ray Kazanov. That's the face of a man who's been to the edge. That's the face of a man who's who's tasted fear
4: and vomit.
7: I think if you're going to make a, and it's obvious because of Clint Eastwood's age, you'd have to do this. But I think if you're going to make a Dirty Harry movie now, a Dirty Harry movie that's him no longer a policeman, maybe some guy from his past. With a real grudge, to you know, an actual grudge, not like a fake G- Lou Gennaro grudge, but an actual grudge coming after him or something like that and him being kind of defenseless because he can't, he doesn't have like the, the legal, like he doesn't have like the legalities of being a policeman anymore. And maybe, you know, no matter how much he pushed the boundaries uh, as a policeman, he really did believe in like the law. You know and being a representative of the law and now he's now he's not, and how he deals with that would be to me more interesting than than anything else. Did he get a gold watch when he left well that's that's a different question entirely. I think there would have been a presentation of some sort i mean the the police in the united States i don't think in most places has a sort of military aspect to it. it's such a dangerous job with with so, you know so many obvious you know, you obviously have to have incentives to, to do that. And it's not just in the pay, but in the culture. And when you die, you basically get like the equivalent of a military funeral with a, the folded flag and, and all the rest of that kind of stuff that really indicates like your, your honor and your service and stuff in those things. So, you know, there's going to be that element. I don't, I think a gold watch would be a, a bit, uh, I don't know, kind of an insult. So I don't think that's what he would get, but you definitely, definitely would have like some sort of a, a big deal. Whether he turned up to it or not is entirely different.
6: Hey, you play piano?
8: My dad played.
6: Ah! Oh, now that's what I mean. Cop's dad plays piano. I mean, that, that's a great notion. I love that. It's got its own reality. It's got its own authenticity. It's very unexpected. It's very It's authentic. my life. It's too bad I can't use it. It's
9: uh, Nobody believed it. Uh, Did Harry grow up poor or was he lower middle class? You know, I I literally think Harry, he was not poor. He was not rich. I think he was literally smack dab in the middle when it comes to maybe lower middle class. But he was definitely middle class. Because the way I think you're supposed to look at Harry Callahan, he is an everyman. He is... Wish fulfillment of the audience, like I believe, you know, it's like seventies, eighties. There's a lot of crime going on. That's why you got movies like Death Wish, where it's like revenge fantasies and all that. You see what's going on. You know, the 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 system isn't working. You got to go outside the system. Here's Callahan, who's in the system, but realizes it's broken and will bend the rules to get the job done. And you're supposed to be like, yeah, that's how you do things. And that's why people like. Callahan because, you know, he throws the book out the window. So, I, you know, I would think he's literally supposed to be an everyman because not everybody can identify with being poor. Not everybody can identify with being rich. I literally think he is just meant to be everyman, USA, you know, that, that type of thing.
6: You know, I've been counting. John, you have seven different facial expressions.
7: I think he'd, like, make an appearance but wouldn't stay very long. You know, because I do think that he, he respects some of the people he works with so their respect for him would be important so he would be there for that but wouldn't stay very long he'd you know just be grouchy
3: and leave if you throw yourself into the work as a homicide detective it's going to change you i've seen people come through and, and people that i don't actually respect because they didn't throw themselves in 100%. I think if you're going to be a homicide detective, you've got to be prepared to bleed for the job. Mm. That sounds dramatic, but what I mean by that, you have no greater responsibility than finding out what happened to someone if they've been, been murdered. You've got to live that and breathe it 24-7. If you don't, you're not doing justice to the victim or the victim's family. And uh, some people weren't prepared to pay that price, which is fine. We weren't conscripting conscripts in homicide. But if you're going to be a homicide detective, don't expect you're going to be at every um, Christmas lunch or mm. you know sporting mm. event or social things. It's going to change your life. And uh, you could get a call and you might be away for the next couple of months. In
10: 1953, he demanded that the show stop saying cop because there was kind of a movement from J. Edgar Hoover down to, to uh, get rid of these kind of terms that seemed to be Anti-police. So we've been saying cop. Is that still considered a slur? Because I've
11: had police in the course of my life tell me that cop is a is a term that uh, that they think is abusive. Do they know we have
10: better, more abusive terms for them?
11: Yeah, we do. But (laughs) but like cop is. is, um, I think what what it was, I guess, is that that's not the term that you choose if you're being respectful. Cop.
12: Harry woke up at 6.30am Harry always woke up at 6.30am His time in the military had drummed it into him with brutal efficiency and now he couldn't shake it Harry lay in bed for a moment and stared at the ceiling The bed was always the most empty first thing in the morning Waking up to the cold hard reality that she was gone and always would be Harry needed a distraction He checked the clock. It was 6.33. His shift didn't start till 9am. If he got ready quickly, he could make the 7am class. Harry leapt out of bed and looked around for his tights. At first, he resisted wearing tights, just wore shorts to the classes. But now he had to admit that the ladies knew what they were talking about. Harry found his tights. He excitedly stuffed them in a bag along with a towel and his dance shoes. He pulled on a clean t-shirt and headed to his modest kitchen. Harry grabbed a glass from the cupboard and an egg and orange juice from the fridge. He tapped the egg on the counter, threw back his head, cracked the egg directly into his gaping mouth and swallowed. Next Harry poured himself a glass of juice and downed it in a few big gulps. Harry released a satisfied burp. Now he felt ready. Ready. But jazzercise Jazzercise was only a few years old It was created by a Northwestern student And it was Harry's favourite new hobby He tried to go to classes At least twice a week It was mostly women that attended The classes Harry didn't mind though It was a nice change from the sausage fest That it was his usual working day The women were all mostly friendly, mainly middle-class moms, in their 30s and 40s. He checked his watch. It was 6.42am. Harry hoped traffic wasn't too bad. He grabbed his keys and rushed out the door. San Francisco morning traffic was always a bastard. Harry snarled behind the wheel. Why couldn't these sons of bitches just get out of his way? Harry dedicated his life to protecting these people. Day in, day out, he put his life on the line. All he wanted in return was some peace and quiet, a quality hot dog twice a day, and some goddamn jazzercise. He made it to the class just in time. He could see the last of the ladies filing through the door of the dance studio, Harry quickly parked and briskly walked inside. Nice of you to join us, Harry, the instructor called out loudly as she noticed Harry walk through the door. Harry grinned and replied, sorry to keep you waiting, ladies. Hurry up and get changed, we're about to get started. Harry saluted playfully and replied, yes, ma'am. Harry quickly changed into his ties and dance shoes and strode out onto the studio floor. Some of the women whistled and one yelled, Nice, tight, Sherlock. Harry smirked. He was used to it by now. He had to admit the female attention felt good after so long without his wife. All right,
6: tell me about the party crash, all right? What's this guy's program now? He, he, he kills four people right in front of you? What does it take to do something like that?
8: Guy's nuts. He's got too many birds on his antenna. I don't know. I don't know what the hell it takes. He's crazy. why you can't pull me off this case. This this party crasher has whacked out seven people, four of them right in front of us. Now he's nuts. I looked in his eyes. You know what? I saw that Captain Pleasure. He likes it. He's going to do it again. Soon. Today, maybe.
7: Moss, you're off. Mayor Dinkins insisted. I've been looking forward to this. Meeting my opponent...
13: Tell me, Lieutenant. Why are you doing this? Why are you treating me like a criminal?
8: I don't know, because
13: you are one. No, I'm not. You're a police officer. You should understand what I'm trying to do.
14: I haven't done anything wrong. Anything. I killed a pimp. I killed a club dealer. You
8: killed the people that make your life difficult. You killed a four-year-old girl.
13: You sacrificed pawns. I would have been a great cop. Better than you.
4: Because I'm smarter than you. I'm smarter than you. I'm better than you. 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 Is there enough debriefing?
3: We have, in Homicide, and this was only introduced, and don't hold me strictly to it, but in the last, um, say, ten years, I suppose, we sit down with a psychologist every, um, I think it was 12 months, it's now six months, to... Mm -hmm have a debrief which is i think is is a good thing in that as a cop i'm not going to put my hand up and go hey i need to see a psychologist Mm. but what they did and i think it's smart play by the police they actually rostered you on that you had to go see the psychologist so you drag the crumpy detective into the room and you're sitting down speaking to a psychologist well you got to talk about something for for the hour that you're scheduled Mm. so i think that was that was a good thing i've been involved in uh a number of um, shooting incidents and I, I know the uh, first ones I was involved in, there was no psychological debrief. In fact, there was one where uh, an operation I was running and uh, someone, was, uh, someone was killed while I was talking to him. He was shot and uh, I was trying
4: oh, to... What? You, you were on the phone to him?
3: No, I was talking to him. And face to face
4: and he was shot. He
3: was behind the door yelling at me and uh, I'm sort of yelling back and then it's a police officer's come in there and uh, he's gone at him with a knife and shot him. And, Bloody uh, hell. Kicked the door down and there's this person that's um, dying and, and uh, that I was traumatised by because that was a job I was running, I was in control of it and obviously that's not what you set out, set out to do. And uh, So we get internal affairs turn up and there's an investigation, quite rightly, um, to make sure everything was done, done properly. But then I'm being interviewed, making sure I've done everything right. And then uh, someone comes into the room and says, um, uh, the psychologist is here. Uh, do you want? Uh, well, you've got to go speak to the psychologist." So they get all the cops involved in this operation. It seems ridiculous in this day and age, but this is uh, the reality of it. Got all the cops sitting around the room and uh, the psychologist said, so has anyone got a problem with this or is upset by this? And, like, we're a group of cops. <laughs> we just sit there and go, no, I'm, oh, <laughs> I'm fine with this. I'm yeah. fine with that. You know, we're all tough guys. or uh, Men and women there, we're yeah. all, you know, tough cops. We're not going to put our hand up in a group environment. Yeah. And then the, the advice that they gave is, um, you yeah, know, go home and train, be with your family and, and whatever you do, don't drink. But cops being cops, we went straight to the pub and, and got on it. Mm. And, uh, that,
4: <laughs> but that's, well, it's human nature. That's isn't it? human
3: nature. Yeah. And, and, yeah, I wanted to leave the police the next day. I, I was, yeah, I, I didn't sleep that night. It was all fine when I was at the pub with the boys and, you know, being the tough guy. And then you go home and... and I'm thinking I don't want to be in the cops. That was not what I joined, to see someone killed like that while I'm talking to them.
8: Want an interview? Yes. You got it. Make sure you get a shot of that body. Okay. All right? Lieutenant Moss, so what's your assessment of this party crasher? Well, you don't need a shrink to tell you that this guy's a raving psycho. Come to think of it, he may not even be a man. I doubt he's got the equipment for it. He's probably a pervert. Whoever he is, he is gutless. He is pathetic. And when his luck runs out, I am going to be on him like a bum on a bologna sandwich. You got that, you chicken shit, wherever you are? That's a promise from me to you.
15: Me to you. Me to you. Me to you. Me to you. (laughs) you. I'm not saying that all men police aggressively or in a manner that is unprofessional and, um, and bad. But I am going to say women typically aren't policing in a manner that causes them to use their muscle, their physical muscle. They're policing in a manner that they use their brain muscle. Because a lot of the time we're encountering someone who could outweigh us, outfight us. But you're thinking of different tactics, a different way to approach a situation. And that's typically with your mental power. This one incident that really stands out in my brain was probably I was a five-year officer and there was an apartment complex on the south side that we responded to quite frequently um, for domestic violence calls or, or weapons calls and um, or unwanted people calls and, and this particular call was all of that. It was a weapon, it was a domestic, it was an unwanted person and Officers had already arrived on scene. I remember all I could hear was yelling, yelling back and forth between the officers that were on scene and this male who had a knife who wasn't leaving the apartment complex, who's kind of standing at the top of the stairs and the officers are standing at the bottom. And it could have went really bad. And instinctively, I just was like, everyone calm down. I was like, we need to lower the tone. We need to relax a little bit. And everyone kind of calmed down. the officers calmed down. the guy with the knife calmed down. He dropped the knife. he came down the stairs. He put his hands behind his back. We were able to cuff him without incident when that could have went bad because everyone was so escalated, nobody could hear each other.
6: You are the best you're a heavyweight you're a Yoda among cops. <laughs>
3: People that I look up to in the in the policing, not necessarily a detective, although there's lots of detectives that I, I looked up to, but that old weather beaten station sergeant, and I could see that the yeah it wore the experience all over them, and uh, just had a manner and a way in that they dealt with people, and that would be like you could have someone in the charge dock and there's some very angry people out there and that's why, oh, yeah. that, that's why they get arrested and you open that cage and they're going to come running out and they're going to try and take your part and I've seen these old style sergeants just talk these people down not through, um, they've they just got a way about them that, uh, a calmness that might just settle down and, and you can see this angry person that just wants to lash out at the world all of a sudden set, settle down because of the way the police officer has spoken to them
15: I also think, um and i might i might sound really sexist but men sometimes will listen to a woman telling him to calm down quicker than he will another man because there's no there's no ego challenge there I mean, is it true,
16: joy, that members used to hang up on you when you answered the phone at D twenty four? Because way
14: back then, they were so so surprised to
16: hear a woman's voice; they thought you had the wrong number.
14: Yes, that's true. Um, I was at that time. I was at the A district support group, and and we did a lot of the uh, communications at emergency um, incidents, and so I was sent up there to see how it's done at D twenty four and and just learn the process. And I started off by answering the phone. So I had people just hang up on me because they weren't used to having a female voice on the other end of the phone. And then when I got on the radio, the reaction was almost stunned silence at times when, when <laughs> I came up on the air and, and answered a, a call that was coming from one of the units. Uh, eventually, they softened to it and, and communicated. But yeah, it did take a little while for them to understand that there was a female voice at the other end.
16: That's extraordinary. I mean, you just wouldn't – no no officer coming through the academy or starting their career now would be able to even picture a female being a rarity. It's quite it's incredible, isn't it?
3: I I didn't join the cops and think, oh, I want to be a policeman. I had no idea what I wanted to do. As it happened, I just happened to see um, uh, see some cops chasing a bad guy, and I applied for the police. And uh, once I got into the police, I understood what it was about. It just it fitted like a glove for me. I, I, there hadn't been a lot of things in life that, that was a natural fit that felt good, and policing just felt right for me.
4: Yeah, and when you're, you, how long did it take you to get from being a uniform to a detective?
3: Um, two two years, and so th-
4: is that quite quick?
3: that's that's uh, um, you've got to do a minimum 2 years but that's very quick and uh, just right place right time someone uh, someone gave me a tap on the shoulder of saw the way I, I went about my business in uniform and said would you be interested in coming across to plain clothes and that's sort of a test period they put you put you in and see if you you've got what it, required so um yeah I went across there and once I became a detective I, I I loved it and that's not um diminishing in any way the role of the uniformed police officer because I think yeah they are the front line cops they got the uh got the hard job but I I found detective work really fascinating and I, I remember when I was a young uniform officer there was a murder and my role was putting up the tape setting up the crime scene and that and I saw these cool dudes turn up. They were the detectives and walk under the tape and come mm. out and came out with this knowing look on their face. And, and I'm thinking, Jesus, I want to find out what's in there. So, mm. yeah, that, that sort of drove me towards uh, being a detective. What? And, yeah, you know, there's probably a, a few belters in there too, in, <laughs> in the detectives that are too cool for school. Oh, yeah. But I worked on a murder with um, uh, the homicide squad turned up and they were like mm. these mythical creatures that turned up in the police station. I looked at them and thought, oh. God, that's so good. I want to be a homicide detective, and uh, so that I, I sort of started to steer my career towards that.
17: So we we get a call uh, for a domestic violence situation, and and we arrived, and it became clear that it was a a an altercation between a teenage girl and her mother. And I was interviewing the mother out in the stairwell of the apartment, and my, my partner was interviewing the girl in the living room. Eventually, we switched, which is which is sort of standard practice. You, you each interview each person. But I get into the living room, and the girl is extremely upset. And as I sort of tried to figure out what had happened, it it became clear that the girl had reached into her pocketbook and my partner had sort of flipped out and yelled at her and said, take your hand out of there, you know, get that away from you, and, and had really upset her. And she was saying, I was just trying to reach for my phone so that I could show you that I was the person who called 911. And he said, well, I didn't know what you were going to do. I didn't know what you're going to pull out of there. And and I thought, wow, boy, that could so easily have ended up with a dead girl, right? When you when you get someone who's who's so primed to think – that, you know, anybody could kill you. Um, that, and, and thank God it didn't. You know, thank God all he did was yell at her. But even that is incredibly damaging. You know, here's a girl who's already traumatized and she's got this armed man, armed uniform man who's shouting at her.
9: And now if Harry was a cop today, here's another load of questions. <laughs> you know, it's, it's it's a, it's a, it's a landmine to answer anything that has to do with modern day police work or, or um, uh, politics, you know, to say the least. But, you know, would, would he pull somebody over for a small, insignificant conviction? Um, would he let him go? I, I think it would depend on the case. I, I, think, I think Callahan would definitely let a small infraction go. But there are times where you catch a big criminal because you pull over somebody for like Speeding, And then you find out, like, they have a warrant or something like that. So so. Callahan would not, he's not worrying about the small stuff. He's worrying about the bigger thing, uh, the bigger crime. So if you pull somebody, you know, let's say he's, you know, on patrol, you see somebody jaywalk. Now, he might use that as an opportunity if he thinks this person is already a criminal, let's say. Or, or has a record or somebody he's been tracking, kind of like when he was following Scorpio. He was looking for Scorpio to get out of line, so he then had an excuse to intervene. You know, depending on, you know, the situation, I would think he would just let it go. But if, if somebody he, you know, was looking as in a Scorpio kind of situation, yeah, no, he would definitely, you know, follow the letter of the law to, to any point that he can do. But I also could see him working alongside somebody who may have had a criminal past. Maybe somebody he's arrested in the past. He's using them for information. Uh, maybe help them even get on the right path from time to time. Because as we see, as hard-ass as dirty Harry is and how he basically gets off on blowing people away, he kind of has a soft heart, too. and And I could see him definitely not following, well, we know he doesn't follow the letter to, uh, of the law, so he would definitely um, let some some little things go, I would say.
15: Police officers have a lot of discretion. Um, discretion meaning I get to dictate what happens in a situation as long as I'm not violating the law. So I can decide whether or not I'm going to give someone a traffic ticket or if I'm going to tow their car. And growing up, poor, I think I have a better understanding how if I told this person's car that it could set them up for, you know, catastrophic situation financially that they might not ever be able to get out of. It's expensive to get your car out of the impound lot. And let's just say they don't have proof of insurance. They'll never get their car out of the impound lot, which means they'll never get their driver's license valid. And it just can set them up for, you know. A domino effect, so I stopped that gentleman because he was driving in a manner that alerted me to him, and he knew everything that was going on within his vehicle that I didn't know, and when I walked up, he was scared, and I noticed it, and so I called it out like, Why not say something? Why not tell him I see you shaking, you seem nervous?' legally i cannot arrest you for driving without a valid driver's license people like to know what's going to happen to them you go to the dentist before they start drilling on your teeth you'd like them to tell you like we're going to drill your teeth you don't want them to just immediately start drilling it calms you down it makes you feel more relaxed so anytime i can make someone feel more relaxed i'm going to you
8: ever kill anybody counting today
6: Come on, John. Look, my character kills this guy. He's probably an innocent bystander. I just want to know what that's like. You can't,
8: not by asking someone.
6: Joey, you open up. I just want to know what it feels like to be inside your skin. I don't want you
8: inside my skin. Do you understand? It's private. What's in there belongs to me. You're not going to learn what it means to be a cop by eating hot dogs and picking your teeth and asking stupid questions. We live this job. It's something we are, not something we do. Every time a cop walks up to a car and has to give a speeding ticket, he knows he may have to kill someone or be killed himself. That's not something you step into by strapping on a rubber gun and riding around all day. You get to go back to your million-dollar beach house and your bimbos and your blowjobs, and you get 17 takes to get it right. We get one take. It lasts our whole lives. We mess it up, and we're dead.
6: Fuck, was that great. I'm... Look, John, could you just do that one more time for me, please? (laughs) John.
15: Teaching officers that... Even though this call is repetitious and you've been to 10 domestic violent calls tonight, take a minute and let this person talk to you and explain their situation to you. Give them a voice. Respond neutrally. So even though you've been to 10 domestic calls tonight, be neutral in your decision making based on this incident that you're on right now. Respect. You might not respect this violent person who you're encountering right now. But I always said, treat everyone professionally. And it's going to appear as if you are respecting that person. It's hard in law enforcement to show respect for someone who you who you know is a violent person who just beat up their wife and, you know, attempted to, to kill her. But you can be professional. When I get down to jail, they're thanking me. And they're not thanking me because I put them in handcuffs and took them to jail. They were thanking me because I treated them humanely. Sometimes their humility is the last thing that this person has. And if you take that from them, you're backing them into a corner and you're, you're not giving them an opportunity to comply with what you need them to comply with.
1: Officers do have discretion. And I think that's why who, we, who goes into policing really does matter. We need a lot more people in public safety who are really thinking about public safety and not just about enforcing laws and, like, you do what I say, you know. And um, I know people have a lot of anger towards the police, but what would it be like if we had a lot of people who were really concerned and cared about protecting communities?
16: Detective Senior Sergeant Joy Murphy. She's been recognised by the International Association of Women in Policing as the longest serving female police officer in the world. I would love to hear about your, how it all began for you 50 years ago. Um, you know, young Joy Mur- Murphy walking into the academy. Do
14: you remember that day? Yes, I do. It was the 2nd of April 1973. Do you remember what? what your biggest idea about policing was that
16: that didn't come to fruition? What were you most wrong about?
14: That I could help everybody. I mean, that was my, my yeah. primary goal of joining the police force uh, uh, when I went through this selection process. You know, I wanted to help people make a difference in their lives, people who uh, erred on the, si- uh, on the wrong side of the law. I wanted to help them to change. I also wanted to protect people from those that would do them harm. And whilst as a police officer, you do a lot of that, you can't actually do it. on every instance because sometimes there are other factors that come into play that mean that you can only take it so far and obviously you know we rely on the courts to also do their piece uh, and you know whilst by and large they do good sometimes you think "Mm, I wish you know there'd been a better outcome.
4: You think to yourself, God, who would be a cop during the beginning of COVID? Remember when people the cops were being spat on yeah. by people because, it, and and then I look at most of the crime stories in news bulletins that are, are I reckon usually people on ice affected by yeah. ice.
3: Yeah.
11: There was somebody suggested to me the other day that that um, in ancient China there was some precedent for civil service jobs to all be you. Citizens would apply for a civil service job, and that job would include police, park rangers, administrators, teachers, um, all the jobs that that a government would fund and support. And then based on your application, the state would determine which job they needed filled and which job you had an aptitude for.
10: I think we still do that, but just everyone with a third-grade reading level becomes a cop.
11: Well, no. What, the people that become a cop are the ones that really want to do that kind
10: of stuff. It's, it's just like politics. They want to bonk heads. I mean, a, a lot of the people who go for those jobs are the last ones who should have it because yeah. their they're reasons – I mean, the, the politicians are all narcissists and the cops are all bullies. Uh, well, so imagine bullies. this.
11: Imagine this. If everyone that worked at the DMV became a cop – and all the cops worked at the DMV. You would get through that DMV really fast. You would get in there, you'd get that registration. There'd be no lines,
10: because there'd be all these angry cops back
11: there. Like, come on, next. Angrily stamping yes, things. Yes, here's your license. Ma'am, I
10: said 96. Would you get up here? And then all the- Ma'am, people- I need you to comply. I need you to step up to the desk. You're number 96. All the people that are at the DMV who are like, ah,
11: and they pick up a piece of paper and they walk really slowly all the way across. And they put it in an envelope, and they walk really slowly back. If they were the cops, and you were like, "Hey, someone stole my bubble gum, and they're like, "I'll be over there in a minute."
9: So why did Harry become a cop? as I've mentioned uh before, pretty sure that Callahan was a marine uh in fact i'm i'm I think there's enough evidence in the movie to to state that uh Harry Callahan was a marine, uh not always, but you will find that a lot of police officers. Our prior military, Callahan is 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 one of those people who will put duty, honor before self. Uh, Being a Marine, I I feel like he probably had a drive for service. Uh, You know, when when it's time to either get out, you know, I would imagine, given his age, Korean War veteran, he gets out of the service. You know, what what else is he going to do? If he was an infantryman, uh, police work seems uh, the right. Path for him to take, a very common path. But, but even if he wasn't in the service, I can still see this character. He's he's all about right and wrong, justice. Um, as a police officer, I think he feels he can serve that. You know, provide justice. He can bring justice to wrongdoers, and such like that. Bring, because as as we see in the movie, more often than not, the the government fails. Uh, the citizens, um, and, and and Harry doesn't think that the, the lawyers and the court and the mayor is doing the right thing, so he'll, he's going to do it himself. <laughs> uh, what was it, uh, Marianne Deacon? You know, he even said to the DA, he like, "Who speaks for her?" Well, Callahan was thinking of her when he's you know breaking the rules because he doesn't care about some low life criminal scumbag who's kidnapped and done other things to a to a kid he's thinking about saving her um and, and i just think that he has a his own moral sense of right and wrong and and that was what what led him to uh become a police officer now it, you know he could have the way callahan is i mean he's a star cop he is well known, he's only you know by the by the Ted Deadpool, he becomes a celebrity of sorts just because of all his ex- exploits as a police officer. He took down you know really powerful mafia bosses and stuff like that. Clearly, clearly committed to the job, regardless if he does it the right way or not, he's definitely committed. But I think if he was anything, you know, if he if he got out of the service and became a fireman, uh, firefighter, you know, an ambulance driver. He would have been the best firefighter, the best ambulance driver in the world. Like that's he's just going to do, give it his all. Um, I'd like to credit some of that to <laughs> to the Marine Corps, uh, but also I will say that a lot of that has to do with just being kind of like an alpha male, and he commits to whatever he's doing. So he is going to be diligent for that.
17: It's simultaneously very, very complicated, and really pretty simple, right? There are lots of pretty simple and straightforward changes. Many, many of the police shootings um, take place in the context of traffic stops, which are perceived by police and the public alike as really dangerous moments. But we don't need to have that many traffic stops. Part of the reason we have so many traffic stops is that as a society, we have decided that we want armed, uniformed people with badges to be the ones who enforce civil traffic law. So e.g., you know, your parking sticker is uh, blocking your windshield too much or your brake light is out or you make a right turn on red when you're not supposed to. We've decided that we need an armed person to be the one to go up to you and say, hey, you shouldn't have done that. You know, here's your ticket for 30 bucks. It's a choice to decide that we want armed people to enforce these civil infractions. We don't have to do it. We could simply say... You know, it's going to be traffic cameras and it's going to be unarmed parking and traffic officials who are going to give you tickets. The only times police are going to stop a car is if you're shooting out the window or something similar. And by magic, we would snap our fingers and greatly reduce the number of dangerous encounters between police and ordinary people. And that's actually pretty easy. We were parked in a parking lot. Our shift was almost over. We saw the security guard at a supermarket seem to be scuffling with somebody in a fight, and we we ran over to see what was going on, and it turned out that he had caught a shoplifter trying to run out of the store, and it was a woman who looked like she was in her 60s. Although when I saw her ID, I discovered she was actually younger than I was. And she had a kind of wheelie suitcase. And inside of it was a sort of value pack of chicken thighs and a big container of laundry detergent. That's what she'd stolen. And she stopped struggling. And she said, I'm sorry, I I needed food for my grandbaby. We don't have no food. And you know, my partner, and I just looked at each other and we looked at the security guard and we were like, you're not going to, you don't want to arrest her, right? Because, you know, she stole food, come on. And and nobody wanted to arrest her. But then my partner did what a good cop is supposed to do. He ran a warrant check. And the reason you run these warrant checks is it would be kind of embarrassing if you let somebody off with a warning and it turned out they were a serial killer, right, who was wanted in 37 states. Um, but that's almost never the case. And it turned out she had a warrant. The warrant was for failure to appear, which basically means that she had not shown up at a court hearing, probably for some similar trivial offense. And that then becomes a mandatory arrest. You can't, you can't just say, well, you've got an outstanding warrant, but off you go now. So we had to arrest her. And I just felt this is, you know, even, even if you're trying to do the right thing as a police officer, the nature of the system you're working in is such that even quote unquote good policing often is going to make things worse for people. You know that there's no the the store security guard didn't want her arrested, we didn't want her arrested. She didn't want to get arrested. She wanted to go home to her kid, you know, her grandson, and instead she was going to jail. Uh, and it it made me feel pretty rotten about the job I was doing.
18: You know, I wonder, did the police department say, well, look, you know, there is value to doing this? I mean, like Timothy McVeigh was captured fleeing the Oklahoma bombing because a a highway patrolman saw him driving a car without a tag.
1: The question is, what is going to create public safety? What is going to protect us? And I think that the enforcement of laws doesn't always protect us, and it actually often really hurts people who really can't afford that ticket, and then they don't pay it, and then they get a warrant, and that's a whole way that our criminal justice system, you know, punishes people for being poor. It, it just began to
17: dawn on me at the police academy exactly how impossible the job police have is, because, as you say, we're told, treat everyone with respect, show empathy, de-escalate situations, stay calm, uh show compassion. You're also told anybody could kill you at any time, and that in many ways was the the single most powerful message I think that that recruits at the police academy absorbed. And what that meant was uh you have to constantly be looking at people's hands, you can't let people sit down on the sofa because it's too easy to hide a weapon between the sofa cushions and they could pull it out. You you shouldn't interview suspects in the kitchen because there are too many knives available to them don't you know don't look them in the eye be, look look at their hands all the time be constantly alert for these these sudden motions where somebody's reaching for something and it's to start with it's kind of hard to show respect empathy and compassion while you're staring at somebody's hands fixedly and refusing to let them sit on their sofa you know it's there's a built-in <laughs> contradiction right there
3: what happens when you join the police you you come out a different person like i I know i'm a completely different person that that I was when I joined the police and it's given me a different perspective on, on life. I s- still have that cop part of me that I look at someone and if I'm speaking to someone I, and I'm hopeless like remembering names because I'm sort of looking the person up and down and thinking, okay, where's this person coming from? Sort of reading body language, that type of thing. And I think that's just instinctful, uh, instinctual um, as a policeman uh, you know, trying to work out what's making this person.
10: So here's an interesting thing. Like we kind of think that, uh, we kind of assume that The old-timey view of cops is that they are good eggs, neighborhood guys on the beat, everybody loved cops, and it's only in the post-counterculture world that we have a more cynical view of law enforcement.
11: They were like uh, Sean Connery in The Untouchables, just out spinning a billy club, walking on the bridge.
10: Uh, Taking an apple from a fruit stand. Yeah.
11: No, asking the guy, uh, why are you packing heat?
10: And it turns out that is, like many of these kinds of... uh, Lost cause kinds of uh, nostalgia. It's, right, it's, it's to make America com- great again. Completely revisionist. I mean, for one thing, nobody likes cops. <laughs> for one thing, it's kind of a modern invention. No American city had a like a full time city paid city subsidized police force until like the eighteen forties. Oh, really? Yeah. Like before it, that, it was just um... there was a constable and informal night watch.
19: May 4th, 1886, um, the campaign for the eight-hour day was sweeping across America's industrial heartland. And in Chicago, um, on the night before the May 3rd, Chicago police had charged an eight-hour day rally. Another rally was called on May 4th. The police charged the rally again, and someone to this day, still unknown, um, threw a bomb killing police officers. Uh also, protesters um, killed that day and a number of four anarchists were hanged in Chicago. The roots of American policing go back very much to those early battles against labor unions, police designed to, built in cities like Chicago to protect the interests of industry against Uh, laborers against unions against strikers and a lot of what we see today accusations of violence by police accusations of corruption by police that sense of impunity that police officers have has its roots very much in that time and indeed in chicago in the first place the city that invented the police red squad to spy on radicals a city that invented police brutality as we know it today in the U.S. and where police are still singularly, uh, have a singular sense of impunity when it comes to shootings, which we're seeing in, of course, the latest videos.
5: Stinky, I don't feel good about the fact that my job only serves to enforce a system built on historical and systemic exploitation. I'm not a very happy
16: little
18: piggy. Ah, Porky, you don't have to like what you do. You just have to stay quiet when your colleagues do it.
16: And for our special Piggy Police pals, check out the ABC Kids online player for all your favourite Piggy Police songs.
0: When you're in a jam, turn off
6: your body cam.
16: Porky and Stinky are the Piggy Police,
1: now airing on ABC Kids.
20: The Sweater by David Dedrick Eleanor was sitting at her desk in the steno pool when she heard he was coming into the department. She stood up quickly upon hearing his name and, maybe a little self-consciously, walked over to the water cooler. There she filled a cone-shaped paper cup with water, pretending to drink it while looking eagerly towards the elevator. She wasn't alone. Others were there, too. There had been a general evacuation of desks as all but the most jaded made their way to the area, attracted by the clamor on the street below. Callahan's in the building, someone said. There was something big happening. Even newcomers could sense it. Scorpio had struck again. No one was sure how, but... As everything the maniac had done so far had been more terrible than the last thing, a blanket of dread had settled on the entire department. There were some murmurs from the younger girls in the steno department as Harry stepped off the elevator and walked purposefully towards the lieutenant's office. Young minxes, she thought, as if Harry would have any interest in a single one of them. No, to her, Harry was a tragic knight a heart-sore puppy wounded by the loss of his true love, his wife taken from him too soon by a drunk driver. Eleanor still remembered that night. The news had broken her heart, and the next morning, expressly against the wishes of Lieutenant Bressler, Harry had come into work. He was too brave and loyal to stay at home, to abandon the citizens of San Francisco to neglect his duty to protect for even one single minute. She felt she understood Harry. She could see how heartbroken he was and needed to reach out, to comfort him in some way. But how? Flowers hadn't seemed appropriate somehow, and it would be awkward to bring a casserole to work, although what could be more perfect for a widower? But no, she decided she would knit him a sweater. She would wrap him in her love and concern, as it were. And so she did. She knit him a red woolen sweater, wrapped in a plain butcher's paper, and left it on his desk with a simple note that said, Sorry for your loss. Eleanor was too shy to even consider giving the present to him directly. She had confined herself to hanging around his end of the office until he came in and found it. He had picked it up, turning it round in his hands, then read the note. Surprised, he looked around the office, but nobody seemed to be paying attention. Reaching into his jacket pocket, he pulled out his infamous switchblade and cut the string holding the package together. Confused, the inspector lifted the red sweater in the air and turned it over once or twice. He looked around the office one more time, failing to see Eleanor's body in his peripheral vision. Was this some kind of joke, his expression seemed to say. He shrugged, crumpled up the wrapping paper and the sweater, and shoved them both into his desk drawer. Deflated, She had turned away and walked back to the pool, her eyes stinging. Maybe I should have given him a damn casserole, she thought, much more practical for a widower. And yet, and yet, Harry had started to wear the sweater. She would see him round the office and felt so proud, her own handiwork, made with love and adoration, respectfully, of course, keeping him warm and comfortable. And all these years later, he was still wearing it. In fact, as he continued towards Bresler's office, Eleanor finally noticed he was wearing it today as well. Satisfied, she had seen him. She could go back to her desk now. In truth, the sweater had become something of a token for her. As long as Harry wore it, He would be safe, she believed. May he wear it his whole life, she prayed. But as Harry passed, she heard a man behind her say, The thug. Eleanor whipped around to see the speaker. It was a little man who worked in personnel, working his way up the greasy pole. He looked back at her without any shame. Staring daggers at him, she hissed, You don't know the sacrifices he's made for this city! He gets paid, doesn't he? The little man sneered. Eleanor looked down at the man's desk to find a name she could forever treat with contempt Jerome McKay. She turned, walked away disgusted. Such a nobody, such a little man, the sort of man who would eat a hot dog hunched over a lunch counter. He could never understand the noble, gallant Harry Callahan. Eleanor returned to her typewriter. She picked up where she had left off, copying the card-sized Miranda Wright warnings the entire pool had switched to producing overnight. What a chore. She stopped and gazed out the window at the city Harry had sworn to protect. She sighed wistfully. And he's wearing my sweater. Part of the unofficial
17: curriculum of the police academy was, was constantly watching videos that our instructors would refer to as officer safety videos, find some YouTube videos of bad things happening to police officers and we'd watch them and, and the, the question for us would be, what did this officer do wrong? You know, how could this officer have avoided this? And so we watched these videos of, you know, officers walking up to cars at traffic stops and having somebody jump out of the car and shoot them. You know, we watch these videos of people going to a domestic violence call and just going blithely up to the door and somebody opens the door and shoots them. So you get this sort of saturation with these these images of police officers getting killed. And the the purpose of this was to say, you know, look, how could that officer have approached this vehicle differently? Um, how could the officers have approached the, you know, maybe they shouldn't have stood right in front of the door. You know, they should have stood to the side so that if somebody burst out with a weapon, they wouldn't be right in the line of fire and so on. And and up to a point, that's obviously useful. But I think that the the overall uh, impact of just video after video of cops getting run over and shot and constant threat, constant danger. And, you know, you, you sort of internalize that sense and it makes it makes a lot of police officers i think very jittery and frankly very trigger happy
21: he shit whips harry too i mean that he beats the fuck out of harry Um, kicks him the back
5: of the head against a wall
21: yeah Mm -hmm. but hey you know what at least there's chico there who can't fire a fucking straight shot to save his goddamn life thank god dirty harry duct tape a fucking prison knife to his leg (laughs) His great, just super pale, patchy, hairy ass calf. Oh, he doesn't have any hair. No, I'm sorry, John. I I noticed that. I'm like, what is he like, a swimmer? He has no (laughs) fucking (laughs) hair on his legs. But it's like, but it's that kind of like, like white guy calf, though, where it's like all like, you know, the little like spindly, like, yeah, very ashy hairs and shit. Yeah, just like super ashy and shit. Like, and also, I'm just going to put this out there right now simple, like, little like desktop tape. Does not fucking strap a stiletto, like, split blade onto your fucking cap. Like, like, you Scotch need duct tape. tape. Yeah, you need duct Especially you. not running, like, 10 miles. <laughs> it's like, you're going to stab yourself. Yeah, yeah. dude. Oh, what my God. Doing? Like, oh, yeah, I got the clear tape from my desk. It's actually really high quality. I'm like, nah.
11: They don't make things like they used to, boys
17: you know yes i i had always thought of this sort of cop swagger you know you see these cops and they're kind of walking a little bow-legged and they're they're swaggering around and i always thought that was that was sort of related to being arrogant or wanting to be intimidating but i realized that it's mostly just that you have so much stuff on your belt and your vest that you you can't walk normally um you've got stuff in your way so you wear uh, an inner belt and then you wear uh, a, an outer belt that attaches to the inner belt and on that belt at a bare minimum you you have your your radio, you have a an expandable baton, you have pepper spray, you have a tourniquet, you have your your gun, you have a flashlight, you have your handcuffs, you have a little pouch containing rubber gloves, You may also have a leg pouch with your tactical emergency casualty care kit. Oh, you have to have pens. You have to have a certain number of the right kind of pen. You have to have your body-worn camera attached in the right position in the right part of your shirt or your vest. You have to have your little Secret Service style earphones or some other earphones so that your radio is not blasting to everybody in the world. Um, You have your cell phone. And in the case for most of the time I patrolled, you had to have two cell phones because you had to use your police department issued phone to label body worn camera videos. But the police department had decided not to pay for phone service on the phones it gave you. It only paid for sort of data which meant that if you wanted to be able to make calls, you had to have a second phone, your own phone, for the purpose of making calls. So, yeah, I could go on, but, but it's, it's quite a long list. Um, men, if they need to pee, they just unzip their fly. But for women, you had to sort of take everything off and put it on again. And it would take 10 minutes to, to do that. I knew many female police officers who said, I just try not to drink anything because I don't want to have to pee during my shift, which is crazy.
16: Am I correct in thinking you would have had to have been a young police woman wearing a dress back then? They wouldn't have allowed slacks for female officers? Uh,
14: that's correct. Uh, we had skirts, not dresses, but uh, women police uh, were required to wear a skirt, a pantyhose, mm-hmm. and you know, it wasn't until a number of years later that uh, we were able to wear slacks. I remember when the The male officers did um, boxing and wrestling. Uh, the females would learn about what was the community Welfare Services Act, which is what child protection work under now, but it's a different name. Mm. So
16: you were doing more of the theory, whereas the male officers were doing more of that physical um physical training and physical side of the job. Did that frustrate you, or were you were you okay with that?
14: Look, I didn't know any difference, so it, it didn't frustrate me. Um, uh, I, I would get involved in physical ac- aspects of uh, training if I could, for example, with swimming.
10: Because we're living in a time when they dominate city governments, they take up half of city budgets often. Right. They're uh,
11: everywhere. And- and
10: often elected officials seem to be basically enthralled to their to their but, moods but and... the
11: relationship of of people in a city it's really it's it's super colored by your relationship to police right are you obeying the traffic signals because you believe in in order and good citizenship the good. or are you behave are you uh, are you following them because you're looking around for a cop and that's true of so much of the way we conduct ourselves now and i, I think the suggestion that if we weren't being monitored by the police, that we would generally do the right thing. You know, that comes up against the kind of scoffing, essentialist argument that law and order types make, that we're all we're all evil and without cops it would we're just be— We're all
10: just one thin blue line away from Lord of right. the Flies. That's right.
11: They're just going to kick down your door and, and uh, steal all your vegetables if it weren't for this thin blue line. But of course, as you're saying, policing— is a fairly recent? Yeah, when you hear that, when you
10: hear that, you think, "Wait, is there something arbitrary?" And then you might think, well, "Yeah, why is it every problem I have with living in a city, my the first thing I do is call somebody with a gun and maybe a bunch of tactical gear in his trunk? I mean, is that and a walkie-talkie? Like, is is that the kind of person who should be doing every kind of need I handle? My first line of defense for every kind of need I have."
17: why do we have so much money for enforcement and not not very much money for social services? Why do we have so much money for enforcement and not enough money to focus on changing the structural injustices that lead to the racial disparities we see in policing? And and I think if you ask the average police officer, if if you say to them, we want to defund you, they'll look at you like you're out of your mind and they'll say, look at the car I drive, look at the equipment I have, look how much it's falling apart, look how much I'm operating without adequate resources. And that's true, right? That that what we've asked them to do, they already can't do with what they've got. But if you ask them a different kind of question, if you say, do you want to be the social workers, the mediators, the medics, and so on, they'll be like, no, 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 I'm terrible at that. I don't think we should be doing this. I really wish there were other people who could do this because i know we're not doing it right and we shouldn't be doing it at all you know that, that that's where there's a lot of common ground and indeed if you say to them do you want to be locking up all these poor people they'll most of them will say my god no of course i don't but that's what you told me to do and if you don't want me to do that or you don't want my colleagues to do that then change the system so you're not telling us to do that anymore
19: we're at a point where there's even There are even bills in Congress and in state legislatures talking about ideas like abolishing or reconstituting the police, which would have seemed um, completely fantastical only a year ago. It sounds so radical and like a sort of communal anarchist um, fantasy to have no police. But the reality is that in a democratic society, policing has to occur by consent and in fact um, radical reorganization of police uh, abolishing police has been an important strategy in ending civil conflicts around the world Uh, somewhere in my house I have a a parking ticket on the wall issued by the Royal Ulster Constabulary the uh, the police force in Northern Ireland that was abolished In the wake of the good friday agreement uh replaced replaced by an entirely new police service of northern ireland um this is actually a realistic goal if in so many communities of color in so many cities around the country in cities like chicago and uh elsewhere the police have lost the consent of those whom they are supposed to be protecting
10: There is one black character in this episode, a uh, a caricature called Mambo Mabanda. Sure, of course. Of the Black Widow Party, who says,
11: Mambo Mabanda.
10: I just want to ask what all you honkies are going to do about, you know, and of course, Jack Webb settles him down and says that the cops have have no beef with the black community. That's right. The problem with this is it's three years after the Watts riots. I mean, people have attempted to
13: claim that the Dirty Harry movies are like somehow racially bigoted I don't see that I don't see I, I, that I don't at see all. either I it, think you could argue they're somewhat sexist yes and and <laughs> that's obviously a, a complaint that they attempt to respond to but I don't see the racial bigotry really. I, I don't either it-
18: Well, let's talk about Ithaca, New York, where you worked with the department there. And as I understand it, the local government has decided to effectively replace the police department with the Department of Community Solutions and Public Safety. How is this going to work? It sounds like it'll, it will require a, you know, a fiscal commitment by the city too, right?
13: Yeah, and that's a good thing. Because in this moment when we're talking about defunding the police, I think we forget that it was a much quieter movement to defund schools in black and brown communities and to defund mental health and to defund jobs and to defund architecture and parks. We've defunded every darn public good where black and brown people live, so much so that policing is usually the only public good that we fund. So part of the movement right now, in terms of how municipalities are working, is from defund to refund. These are dollars that should have been going to the community in the first place to prevent the sets of things that have people calling nine one one
17: So often the calls we we came to, including many of the assaults, many of the domestic violence situations, disorderly conduct situations, you know, were were involved someone who was mentally ill or involved people who who were having some kind of breakdown in family relationships that didn't necessarily require police that didn't involve somebody being violent but simply involved people not not having the ability to figure out how to resolve conflicts but also sometimes those conflicts were driven by need you know, that that conflicts would be over, You're multiple people in the same house, all of whom were working multiple jobs to hold things together, which would mean that tensions would easily erupt over, well, who's using, who's taking too long of a shower when everybody needs to get ready?
3: I think what we get wrong in the cops is that a distorted view on life, like we don't have time to stop and, you know have a look at the person that we're tracking down because we haven't got time and what's caused this person to be that way. And that's what I'm finding interesting. And uh, I think it distorts your view the longer you stay in the cops and you've got to fight against that. I didn't socialise with a lot of police outside of work and I think that was good because uh, if you're hanging around with cops all day at work then hanging around with cops outside of work, you get a sort of distorted Mm. view on on the world. So Totally old friends sort of check you and uh, put you back in uh, perspective.
7: Maybe one of the problems with Dirty Harry's character as you carry him on into other movies is that his character can only exist in this cartoon reality that has just been established in the Dirty Harry movie. You know, he's this heightened alpha male cop, you know, who is like cartoonishly lone wolfish, you know, uh, isolated, all all that stuff, right? You know, in... Prestige TV now, the
10: protagonists are often touchy, grumpy, don't-play-by-the-book antiheroes. Right. But millions more people are watching the the scientific, uh, clean-cut exploits of the CSI guys or NCIS or, you know, all these shows where... They put
11: one fingernail clipping in and they can tell the guy's eye
10: color. And the cops are still solving a case every 54 minutes, and none of them are dirty because... That would be a different kind of show. That would be a serialized show if, if a cop was actually dirty or conflicted or troubled. Right. Um, for the shows to just be kind of be interchangeable. The reason my folks watch them from them to be exactly the same every week. The cops all kind of have to be efficient, unimpeachable robots.
13: The incident that led to it was just expired tags in Brooklyn Center, 10 miles north of where um, the George Floyd uh, murder took place. So if you don't have armed response to expired tags, Dante Wright is 1,000% alive. Now, I keep hearing people say, oh, but he had warrants out. And I have to say, that doesn't matter for this. You know where somebody lives if they've got a warrant out. You can go serve them there. We see it happen all the time. The precipitating incident was expired tags, and if you take that away from law enforcement, you take away the incident where someone with a gun shot and killed
3: someone. Uh, and I, I don't think you can train empathy. If you do, the, <laughs> You're probably lacking. If if someone's been sent to empathy training, they're probably a flawed, uh, it, yes. flawed I character. I think there's a
4: few politicians have been sent to empathy yeah. training lately, haven't they? Have
3: empathy? How do I? <laughs> oh, that's right, empathy. Yeah. That, that just doesn't work.
4: Please
13: do away with tear gas. Do away with the kettling. All the things that escalate anything, just don't do that. And if you've got to show up, try and make sure that you prioritize people over property.
3: The detectives that I've looked up to, I'm surprised how much the word empathy comes out. And that's mm. what I, I've always thought that when people say, what's a characteristic of a good detective? I say empathy. Mm. And people sort of look at it. What do you mean empathy? You know, how does that, that work? But to understand the victims to understand the uh, offenders is all part of empathy and i think that makes you definitely makes you a better detective some of the worst detectives i've seen are the ones that don't care yeah they could go to a crime scene and walk out and be or make a mistake and they're not even worried about making a mistake because they, they don't really care they're, they're disassociated from what's going on the detectives that i like are the ones that live and breathe it and um you know it will impact on them but that mm. I think that makes them a better detective and people could say oh but then you get tunnel vision you get this and that, that's just an excuse for the people that are not prepared to pay the price like I would always give my phone number to the victims and say you phone any time and that was to my detriment quite often and sometimes it would be late night calls where I'd, I'd be the, on the end of a barrage of a, abuse mm. they're venting their emotions I know it wasn't directed at me personally it's their um, you know They're they're suffering.
13: Their data indicated that a disproportionate number of their use of force incidents were happening around foot pursuits. Um, We asked them what their foot pursuit policy was. They said, we don't have one. We said, you probably should. But beyond that, they immediately recognized the risk of a foot pursuit. In a foot pursuit, the person who's running away, most law enforcement thinks that's a bad guy because nobody runs from law enforcement except for the bad guys. They also have their adrenaline up, their heart rate up, And they're sweating, especially in Las Vegas summer. Now the person who's running away might turn around, put their hands up and say, please don't hurt me. But with my adrenaline that high, you're getting a a punch to the kidneys for the price of making me run. And so what they immediately recognized and what the community recognized as well is that just by slowing down, by counting to 10 the way you you learn in, in anger management or marriage counseling, or by just not touching the person if you were the first person on scene, you could reduce the likelihood that this devolves into a use of force incident. The result was a 23% reduction in police use of force the following year, um, and that became a model for experience-led training law enforcement nationwide. Obviously not good enough, but a little bit of a bright spot during a period of time when there was almost no movement around these issues.
21: Yeah, and instead he then just starts firing his Magnum forty four from half a mile away into a thickly settled apartment complex. Oh my god! And that's actually <laughs> oh, dear, the, yeah. that's the second time he's fired into like literal crowds. I mean, like when the bank the bank robbery was happening, he was firing down a street with seventy five people, and then yeah, same. He's thing. He's like sneezing while firing at the same time. Doesn't even looking when he's fucking doing it. My whole
22: thing with this is like they couldn't give Harry a rifle with a scope. They gave him a rifle with open sights. Like, he's just, he's like gonna snipe someone across like 10 city blocks with
21: fucking open nits. It was never gonna work out. Isn't that supposed to be for SWAT to do? Not just
7: local
10: inspectors? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) When you get
21: Harry Callahan.
10: Yeah, my God.
21: (laughs) (laughs) He kills like five people just during that shootout. He's like, everybody's guilty about something. Yeah, that's how I go to looks bed every back, night.
22: Looks back at the in the naked woman's apartment, they're all dead. <laughs> oh, fuck. Well, <laughs> he's, he says something like, I guess it's the one that got away. Chico's <laughs> like, that doesn't, that doesn't, no, that doesn't make sense. You killed them. They, they literally didn't go anywhere. <laughs> no, no, it was a
21: ricochet from the submachine gun that the killer was carrying to use as a sniper rifle, apparently. That was a little weird. All of a sudden, this fucking submachine gun comes out of fucking left field.
13: not just the way that individual officers do it in the moment, the way that we do it as a country, the way that we have literally decided, hey, I see someone got shot. The next thing I need to know is, did they deserve it? And we don't talk about it like that. We say, well, we need to see the rest of the film. We need to understand the context. And that's not completely unreasonable. But if you listen to the conversations, what we're actually talking about is maybe the person who died deserved it. And that's, almost the only conversation we're having as opposed to what things could we have done so that regardless of what the person who is dead did they could be alive when we start having that conversation i know that we will have moved from where we started
12: okay okay enough messing around let's get started Cindy started the music and everyone lined up in rows facing front. The whole class reflected in a wall of mirror. Harry felt the beat wash over him and started tapping his foot. Cindy continued. Okay everybody, we're going to start off with some basic hip rotations. Five, six, seven, eight. As the class continued... Harry could feel all the stress of the past few days fade away as he lost himself in the rhythm and the sweat. Once the class was finished, Harry got changed, said his goodbyes to the ladies and headed home. The traffic was even worse now, but Harry didn't really care anymore. He always enjoyed the feeling of exhausted peace after a jazzercise session. When Harry got home, he quickly showered and dressed for work, choosing his favourite blue and red tie. Harry had just enough time to make some breakfast. He cut up some hot dogs he had in the fridge and threw them in a pan on the stove. Once browned, he cracked in two eggs and gently stirred the mixture together. Harry spread mustard on a piece of toast, and once the concoction was cooked, he scooped it onto the toast. Eggs a la Harry, his favourite breakfast. Moments after he started eating, the phone rang. It was the captain. He told Harry he shouldn't head into the station to start his shift. A woman had been murdered that morning. Shot while swimming in a rooftop pool downtown. As Harry hangs up the phone, he stares at his plate and realizes that he's not hungry anymore. He slowly exhales in frustrated resignation and throws his breakfast in the trash.
13: I'm so I'm
22: so sorry. I, you know that's a, it's the crazy thing being here in America. You guys there, I can't see anyone's face and when you're going
5: to talk, so I don't mean to speak over anything, but. <laughs> Redders? No, 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 Redders just okay. Redman, Is that what she says when you're in trouble too?
2: You, 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 only, you only ever get called by your first name when you're in trouble Okay Alright, so I
0: guess we'll see everyone for the next episode of Craig McLaughlin
20: Minutes <laughs> Let me know if I need to redo anything I'm happy to record it again If you need to add background noise removal, whatever Good fun. Thanks for having me do this. Yeah, I'll send this over right now.
22: That's amazing.
0: (laughs) That is amazing.
22: Okay, so you you want me to save
0: that? Did you end up watching any movies or anything?
22: Uh, I actually have. um, I've I've probably watched more movies than I've gotten a chance to watch in a a while. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with some of the the great World War II movies, but I'm a, a real World War II buff. And so I sat down and watched a, a great movie, if you've never seen it, called A Bridge Too Far.
20: Oh, yes,
0: about the Arnhem, uh, the paratroopers and stuff. Yes. It's an all-star cast, yep. isn't it?
22: Yep. It is an all-star cast. It Yep. is a great movie, great World War II movie, fairly accurate, you know, from what I've read and seen. And so that was great. And I also sat down last night and watched the movie Platoon. So I'm kind of on a, on a war bench But it's it, you know it's um, again a movie that used to be on TV here all the time, but it, it's good. It's worth seeing if you're a Bond fan. But it's it's not the greatest Bond movie of all time.
18: What is the greatest Bond movie of all time? Since we're on the subject,
22: ooh,
0: From Russia with Love. Did you-
22: yeah, I, I would um, I would agree with you. I'd say From Russia.
0: I know a okay. lot of a lot of people care about Thunderball, which was the original Never Say Never Again, but I find Thunderball so by numbers um, and the underwater footage is so boring. I've never liked Thunderball, but yeah, I love, From Russia would love, so good.
18: Huh. Is that Connery or... Yeah.
0: Yeah,
22: that's... that's Connery okay. and
18: Robert Shaw. Yep.
22: And I, I like all the... Well, I don't like all the Roger Moore movies, but I like a lot of the Roger Moore movies just because they're kind of campy and fun but moonraker got got so over the top and <laughs> then he just got old and thank you
0: star wars shouldn't have, yes that's exactly
22: how they got to moonraker and um but he should have retired before his last movie so but anyway
0: you remember
18: we were born this year Scarface oh 83 oh, that- so it's still 83 was Stephen Seagal around then or was he a little bit later uh,
0: not my expertise do you know Walter You was Seagal uh, a little Dude. bit
22: later I think
18: yeah I think it's more because he was huge in the sort of the late 80s late 80s 90s, early I 90s um, he was kind of big
17: yeah
22: yeah and he was kind of in that same well I remember going to see a couple of his movies in college so yeah it would be late 80s early 90s um mm. Man, there was one in particular that was absolutely horrible, but every time it's on, I have to watch it.
18: Um, Is it *Out for Justice*? No, it's the one where he's on a ship, and oh, I know why you like that movie. Yes. You know, it's got nothing to do with Stephen no, Segal. Oh, you're talking thing. about um, *Under Siege*. Under Siege,
22: that's it. Yep.
18: Yeah. Yes. Uh... God knows what I'm talking <laughs> about. Yeah. That's good...
22: Yeah, it's it's a great movie. <laughs> it's a great scene. But
18: yeah, the sequel not so much. There's uh, a sequel. To first that first one's pretty good. Yeah, it's on a train, and it's got a young Catherine Heigl oh, as his yeah. niece. Oh yeah, that was
22: horrible.
18: It's also got
0: uh, Rupert McGill or what his name is from Heartbreak Ridge. You know the main dickhead officer, Rupert McGill. Oh yeah, Everett. Yeah, Everett. Everett. Whatever his name is. Yeah.
18: Is that in? Is that in the sequel?
0: Yeah, he's the main tough, not the main bad guy on the
18: train, but the main tough, I think. Yeah. The main bad guy ended up on Law & Order, I think. Just a bit weird.
4: Take that, bunny! You shot
0: ten bullets, Stinky. One for self-defence and nine for fun.
16: Ten, ten bullets, bullets, ten
21: bullets, the number of the day.
16: Join Porky and Stinky on their adventures through the judicial system.
11: Order, order in the court. Well, Stinky, I don't think you should have extrajudicially executed that bunny. Porky... Do you think Stinky did the wrong thing?
16: No, Mr
0: Judge. Stinky was following proper pig procedure. Always
11: stick up for your friends, even when they do something wrong.